All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started here. Um, we will begin with a word of prayer. So let us pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, your Son fought the good fight of faith and was obedient unto death. Um, um, even death on the cross, pouring out his blood as a peace offering between you and us. Keep us faithful unto death so we may receive the crown of righteousness, that the righteous judge will reward us on that day, having waited in hope and love for his appearing. Through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 All right, so we are beginning uh, our study on Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller in earnest today with last week kind of being an introductory. Um, kind of get you all started. So I guess we'll just start with the first question because um, we have these four different areas, these four main areas, and then we'll get into other uh, areas that are, are uh, connected in some way. The four main areas are revivalism, pietism, mysticism, and enthusiasm. So uh, we'll start with that first question. Revivalism teaches that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ. So why is this appealing? Let's just ask that first question. Why is that appealing? You're in control. Yeah. Yeah, you're in control. You have some choice in the matter, right? God's not going to strong arm you, but he's going to try and persuade you a little bit. And you need to make up your own mind, though, right? Uh, so, so, yeah, our flesh likes to have some choice. When I say our flesh, I mean our sinful flesh. You know, that the, the thing which, keep, which, which clings to us that would draw us away from faith and salvation in Christ, right? Our flesh, our sinful flesh, likes to have some choice in the matter, even when it comes to salvation. But what's the danger in this? What's the danger? Yeah. I feel like the danger is, you know, it all starts with me. Yeah. Um, Jesus made salvation possible mm -hmm. without him life would be meaningless. Right. Yeah. Right. It begins and it ends with Jesus, right? He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, nowhere in that is choice. Nowhere in that is, you know, make a decision for Jesus, right? Uh, what other sort of dangers are there? Or are there any more? I said Christ is no longer the actor of salvation. Okay. So Christ becomes more passive and the person is active. Yes, yeah. It, it's, it's kind of overshadowing what Christ does for you. It, it's kind of like Jesus started it, now you got to finish it in some way, right? And this morning I kind of told people that uh, it's funny how with this understanding of revivalism, it's kind of like, it's, it's very similar, not in every aspect, but it's very similar to like the Roman Catholic understanding of salvation. That Jesus started it, Jesus died for you, and your sin, the sin that you're born with is forgiven because of him. But now you need to account for all the rest of your sins. You need to make penance for this, that, and the other. It's not exactly like that, but it's very similar in that we have something to do, right? We have something to do now. And in that way, it's like, uh, it's, it's kind of like what they say, those who engage in something like this are kind of knocking on the back door of the Roman church, right? They may not be going in the front door, 
making it seem like, yeah, we agree with everything you say about how we got to atone for our sins or that we need to make satisfaction, as they would say. But we will go on the backside and say, yeah, but you still have to make a choice. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of funny how they both kind of wind up in the same place in different areas. So. And the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to be in the picture. No. Who's that? <laughs> yeah. Who? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Holy Spirit takes a back seat for sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's a big danger. We forget who's really doing the work, right? So yeah, all good, all good stuff. So yeah, danger there, especially, you know, what he says on page 14, you know, um, our salvation is God's work from the very beginning and we are beneficiaries of his mercy. We just, we just receive, right? We don't have any choice in the matter. He decides for us, as Pastor Wolfmiller gets further on in the book. Any other thoughts on revivalism before we trudge on here? So Jesus says he stands at the door and knocks. Mm -hmm. (coughs) So it's opening the door, not a personal decision? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess it's one of those things of... uh, uh, if we understand it according to Scripture, you know, because we have to interpret Scripture with Scripture, right? Mm-hmm. If we are dead in our trespasses and sins, if we are nothing but children of wrath without God's gracious intervention, um, then that presupposes, because of what Scripture says, that we are not able by ourselves to hear Jesus and say, Oh, is that you, Jesus? Oh, okay. Well, since it's you and not Buddha then I'll open the door, right? But it is that when Jesus speaks, um, it's like, what is it? When Jesus speaks, he creates faith, or the only thing that we have the choice to do in and of ourselves is to sin and reject God. Uh, Everything else that has to do with salvation, he is the one that needs to make that change within our hearts so that we can accept this, so that we can receive faith and believe in him. I think first, is it first Corinthians that says that no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. You remember that part from, from Corinthians where, you know, it's like, so anyone who says Jesus Christ is Lord, the Holy Spirit first came in and changed their heart to make them say that. See what I mean? When you say things like, you know, I stand at the door and knock, like what Jesus says in Revelation, right? That is used in such a way by itself, out of context, to make it sound like there's a choice. To make it sound like we're the ones who opened the door for Jesus. Uh, As opposed to realizing that by the time we open the door, he's already inside. (laughs) He's the one who's enabling us to open that door. Does that make sense? Why would you open the door for a stranger? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Very good point. Yeah, why would, yeah, don't open the door for strangers, kids. That's not a good good policy. Does that kind of answer your question, James? I mean, it sounds like by itself it's a choice, but with the rest of Scripture, we know that it's not really about our personal choice, but that God is the one moving us to believe, right? He's the one creating belief within us in the first place, right? So... He's doing it all. Do we not have a personal choice, a uh, free will? Mm. We have free will, 
but not in matters of salvation. And, and uh, we have free will in a lot of ways. I have free will to decide what direction I, what, what route I take home after church, right? I have free will in, um, in deciding what I want on my hamburger, right? We have free will in matters of civil, uh, civil matters or horizontal matters, as they say, as opposed to the spiritual, which is the vertical matters. Do you see what I mean? So... Um, we can proclaim a so, civic righteousness, but not a spiritual righteousness by ourselves. So that would lead down the path of uh, predestination. Yes, yeah. Predestination, election, if you want to call it that too, um, of God, God ordaining some, ordaining a certain, uh, a certain number of people, right? That sort of thing. Um, Those he called, he also predestined. Exactly. He predestined, he also... No, he also, I, I got that switched, I think. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> I forget it sometimes, too. Doesn't he choose everybody? Yeah, so that's the thing that... He wants everybody. Yeah. Right. He desires that everyone would be saved, that, right. that, that everyone would come to faith. Uh, you know, he does not desire that the sinner should perish, but should turn and have eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and that's that's the thing about predestination and election that gets a little tricky. We as Lutherans simply say predestination should never precede talking about Jesus Christ dying for your sins because Jesus died for all people, right? And for those that we would talk about election or predestination for are those people who are Christian but are despairing in saying, am I really chosen by God? And for them, we use it only for comfort to say, yes, he has chosen you to be his elect. Trust in that, that Christ has died for you. Other Christians will use, of other traditions like Calvinists and Reformed, they will use it on both sides and say, well, if God chose some to be saved, he chose others to be damned. And we do not talk like that because that's not how the Bible talks, right? Uh, they're making a logical leap that we should not make. Does that make sense, sort of? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Yeah. Yeah. You never should be able to say, you know, uh, because they'll go even so far as to say Jesus did not die for all. He died for the elect only. And we go, where in the Bible does it say that? Right? Where, where, it doesn't say that. Right. In fact, that directly contradicts the clear teaching that God desires for all men to be saved. Right. Yeah. And the devil is working over. Oh, yeah, the devil is working overtime, even amongst Christians, right? especially amongst Christians. He's the one, we're the ones he's really after. Yeah, Yeah. so he believes all that, uh, you know, he wants everybody to be saved. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. So why would he harden the heart of Pharaoh and Saul? Well, you know, it's one of those things where we, we know that according to Romans 1, that he gives people over to their lusts. You know, uh, that um, the people who chase after the desires of their own heart that are sinful, I mean, eventually he, he just says, well, this is what you want. Here you go. See what it, see what it gets you. Yeah, but they did. They, well, did they do that on their own? It's, it, the Bible says he hardened their heart. Yeah, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
He hardened Saul's heart. And we would ascribe that to mean that they were the ones who acted first in rejecting him, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. so that, that because, because Pharaoh was already worshiping false gods uh, in, in Egypt, right? He was already worshiping the false idols of, all, all of the river gods. So their, you know, their hearts were hardened already. Why does it say God hardened their hearts? Because that's what it means to give you over to your lusts and passions, um, when God hardens your heart, uh, it's one of those things, uh, you know, we don't exactly know why, except that it was used for the good of his people, right? That with, uh, with Pharaoh, at the very least, you know, he hardened his heart further and further after he'd begun the work himself in rejecting him, so that all of the different plagues would be brought about to show everybody else the foolishness of following after false gods, right? Uh, the foolishness in contradicting the one true God who created the heavens and the earth. It was for an overall purpose that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Uh, and for Saul, I mean, definitely in bringing about David and all these other things as well. Um, the one true anointed, or the one who succeeded King Saul. Is that what that's just all you're talking about, right? So he did that for a reason, but at the same time, he didn't want anybody to go the wrong way. Well, it's one of those things, like, he doesn't desire that anyone should perish, but he right. does have consequence for sin. There is a consequence for unbelief. And the consequence for unbelief is that God gives you over to the fullness of that unbelief, which in effect would be hardening your heart, because, I mean, God is a just God, and one who does not just let certain sins, especially idolatry, just go without having any consequences. You know? So they sinned first by rejecting him, and he furthered it by hardening their heart, saying, this is what you want, this is what you get. Right? Does that make sense? There are consequences to our action, including, uh, including the unbelief that we would actually So the girl made me. There. Yeah, the woman that you gave me, God. Right, yeah, right. right. Yeah. So he pretty much passed judgment on them before death. Well, I mean, there was always the opportunity for them to repent. Uh, Pharaoh didn't have to chase after the Hebrews. He didn't have to ride into the Red Sea, but he was so far gone in his own sin and uh, pride that he couldn't help himself. And the judgment came, obviously, when Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea, right? When he died. So, I mean, he didn't necessarily pass judgment on him. But I guess you could say, yeah, he did, he, he, he did pass judgment on him that, that he should be his instrument for a certain purpose, even to show you what unbelief looks like. <laughs> that's a pretty harsh thing. Thanks for getting us there, James. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, yeah, you thread it out and you, you wind up going down some interesting paths, for sure. For sure. All right, how, how about we tackle uh, pietism now? So pietism teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by growth in good works, on page 15 there. So what's the, why is this appealing? What's appealing about pietism? Well, they think they're working their way to heaven, but you could never do enough. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, and it's even more subtle than that, isn't it? That um, pietism would say, like, you know, I'm a Christian, 
but look how good of a Christian I am because of all the good works that I do, right? Yeah, Jesus saved me, but I also need to do these good works because that's important for my calculation of how good a Christian I am. You see what I mean? The flesh always wants to boast about itself. Yeah, the flesh loves to keep score. Yeah, the flesh loves to say, you know, like, here's my calendar on the wall, and I pray in the morning, and it's like... Tick, 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 tick. Oh, look how good I am. I got all those mornings prayed for, you know? Whereas somebody else can come along and say, so what? I pray in the morning and at evening before I go to bed. And then somebody else can come along and say, so what? I, I pray uh, morning, noon, and night. Someone else can say, yeah, well, I pray continuously like the Bible actually says. So what are you going to do about that? I mean, there's never enough to do as far as if you're going to try and keep score. Right. And I guess you could say that's the danger. Or is... Is there anything other than that that could be dangerous? So if you're always trying to keep score, what's the danger there? Oops. Oops. <laughs> okay. What do you mean by oops? You can't do anything because Christ has done everything. Okay. Well, you can do... Yeah, for our salvation. That's exactly right. You can't do anything for your salvation. But like I said, it's tricky. Because now if we say, all right, I believe that Jesus Christ has died for my sins. I am a Christian now because I trust that he has done this. But now I'm going to go try and be a super Christian by adhering to the law. And I'm going to make sure I mark it all down. And that is what's going to make me a good Christian. Right? What's the danger there in keeping score and thinking that's the really important part? Well, if you're helping others because you know it's the right thing to do, mm -hmm. that's one thing. But if you're helping others so they'll go, whoa, look how much she does, that's wrong. Interesting. Yeah, because what are you trying to do? You're trying to get a reward from men to see your good works. That's, that's one part of it for sure. So if, if you're the one, if you say, let's just ask this question. If you believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe that he has died for my sins, that he has uh, delivered me from sin, death, and the power of the devil, but now I got to do certain things, who's missing from the equation there? Jesus. Yeah. Well, he's there at the beginning, mm -hmm. but who's the one who sanctifies us? Well, doesn't the Holy Spirit lead you to do good things? That's exactly right. The Holy Spirit is missing, right, in that equation. That the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, it, I think he says this exactly on, uh, where does he say that? Um, yeah, page 17, last, last part, part, part of that section. You know, when we try to achieve comfort, certainty, or confidence through our works, we are grasping for ourselves what only Christ can give, and pietism fails to teach the comfort of the scriptures, that is the Holy Spirit, who keeps me in the faith through the word, and that my life of love, that is my life that I now live acting out that love and good works, is a gift from God. Right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's missing the Holy Spirit. It's totally leaving him out of the equation because it's all about what I'm doing by myself now that I've been saved. Right? 
Maybe that's a very crude way of putting on pietism there, but that's, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, any comments or questions on that? No? I mean, it, it, it's coming from a good place. It is a good thing to want to do good works, but we have to understand our proper place within these things, that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability, the desire, the will now of God to go and love our neighbor because Christ first loved us, not because we're trying to keep score. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, how about number three, mysticism? Mysticism teaches that we can have direct unmediated access to God, and why is this appealing? So, and and, and we need to have some like qualifiers here, right? That I think... James, you asked last week that, you know, mysticism, don't we have that through prayer? Like direct, direct access to God. That was my comment again. Yeah, Yeah. direct access to God. But that's not what prayer is. Prayer is always mediated by who? The Holy Spirit. Yeah, the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, right? (laughs) That you don't have just direct access one-on-one to, you, you don't have a direct line. You're like, I, I got a direct line to the big guy. Don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it for you, right? It's one of those things where we pray in the name of Jesus, right? And he is the one who is the mediator between us and God the Father by what he has done for us. So prayer is mediated in a certain way, right? Um, and the thing is, though, is that mysticism is talking about uh, this idea, what does he say? That like, Mysticism assumes the capacity of the human soul to come in direct contact with divinity. It, the, the goal is direct contact, like touching God, right? Feeling that God is present, right? Mm-hmm. Usually, usually it manifests itself in feelings, right? Like you go to a great concert or, or, or like a great worship service, and only because the music moves you or something like that, the lights are great, the band is good or whatever, and you go... You go, I just felt that God was there. He's everywhere. Yeah, he's everywhere. That's true. But you know that because of what Scripture says, right? right? Not because of how you feel. Mm -hmm. So what's the danger there? If it's all about your feeling, or if that's the primary motivation or or, uh, way you know, what's the danger there? Well, direct contact with God, we already know that if you see God, you're dead. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) These guys are nuts. Yeah, I know, right? It's so funny. (laughs) It's so funny. Yeah, because um, what does he say? He says like, um, uh, so um, direct contact. Yeah, it's like. Do you think that you can have just direct, unfiltered contact with God and, like you said, not die? We've all, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Bible tells us you gotta, you can't look at them. You gotta like close your eyes or right. walk past, you know, the Moses thing or whatever. I mean, yeah. Well, that's why we have Jesus, right? You can't have it. Yeah. He took on flesh so that we could actually see God face to face on some level, right? That we can see God in Jesus, right? He is the mediator between us and God the Father. So when you say that you can have, so, okay, so it's, it's appealing because on some level, you know, um, 
Our flesh likes to think that I can just touch God. I can have direct access to God. I don't really need Jesus. What do I need Jesus for? I have a direct access to God, right? On some level, they might not be that crass or that, that direct, but that's kind of what it is um, because of your feelings. And the danger can be that, you know, your feelings, are they a good guide? Are they a good compass to go by all the time? Oh, man. How many times have your feelings gotten you in some trouble? Feelings, emotions, all that stuff. Yeah, oops. <laughs> yeah, so your feelings can mislead you. That's not to say that feelings are inherently a bad thing or cannot be used for the glory of God, cannot be used to guide you in a certain way that is good for you, but you got to be careful. When your compass is your feelings, when it comes to mysticism, that you have this mystical experience, because I felt it. What did he say about uh, Chris, Chris Tomlin? He said, you know, um, he's like, how do you know when you've arrived in the presence of God? And Chris, Chris Tomlin just goes, you just know it. It's like, that's great. I'm glad I've got such confidence that I just know it when I'm in the presence of God. I mean, it leaves so many questions, right? Yeah. You just know it. How do you know it? You just do, man. You just do. Well, I'm going to take that to the bank. You know, <laughs> sounds great to me. I don't think so. It sounds pretty sketchy, right? The danger is that, you know, the danger is that what if, what if somebody shares the gospel with you? Like literally you are, you are in despair and someone tells you, Hey, you know what? This, this is not, this is not something to be too worried about. Jesus Christ has died for you. He's forgiven you of all your sins. Take heart and receive peace from that, that, that regardless of what happens, you're free from the power of sin, death, and, the, and sin, death, and the power of the devil. And they just go, nah, I don't know. That doesn't really hit me in the feels. <laughs> you know, that I, I, I'm not really feeling it. It's but, like... But when yeah. we pray, don't you feel like Jesus hears us. Well, I mean, yeah, he hears you. But here's, and this, this is the other thing, because I think this is one of the trickiest ones is mysticism. Because it's like, your feeling can be a good thing, especially like if you're feeling in despair. It's a good thing when that feeling is motivating you to pray and to ask mm -hmm. God to give you peace, mm -hmm. right? That is a good thing. And, um, but you know that Jesus hears you, not because you feel that he does, but because God's word says that he does, mm -hmm. right? It's certainty where there is no certainty with feeling. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, is that the gospel is true no matter how you feel about it, right? It's objective. Mm -hmm. uh, it's outside of yourself. So sometimes when you're feeling down or when, you know, you feel you feel like you need some help and the gospel just isn't doing it for you. You know, you're not really feeling what the gospel is laying down for you. I mean, on some level you kind of have to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where is your focus? Where is your faith? Is it in how you feel or is it in what God is telling you right now, clearly in his word that Jesus forgives you of all your sins? You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. So where is your faith being placed in your feelings or in Christ as he has revealed himself in his word. That makes sense? Yeah. Yeah, it kind of helps us ground ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, we're just kind of shifted back and forth with our feelings.
it's it's kind of scary, especially for us guys. We don't like our feelings very much, do we, fellas? Uh, no. Nah. <laughs> you hurt my feelings. <laughs> you know what's actually kind of funny? And I did I did mention this 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 morning. Mysticism, at least when it comes to mystical, like a mystical kind of worship experience. I, I don't know. Fellas, tell me this, you know, and the ladies that are here, you can tell me as well. Um, when he says on page like 18 and 19, like the bottom of 18, top of 19, he's like, a survey of contemporary praise and worship songs shows all the marks of mystical worship, like seeing God, touching God, feeling God. I mean, does that sound, you know, losing ourselves, being caught up? swept away, you know, that sort of thing. Does that sound masculine or does that sound feminine in a certain way? Would you expect a guy to talk like that about just like, it's like, man, I was just working on my truck and, and you know, it's like, it was great to just feel that truck, to touch that truck, to get caught up and swept away and working on my truck, you know? <laughs> to be one. Yeah, to be one with my truck. That's what I was really going for, man. You better get rid of that. <laughs> yeah, get rid of that fella, yeah. Yeah, I don't think he... I mean, if you find a guy like that, you have to kind of ask some questions about him. You know, it's kind of kind of interesting. But I think, you know, that sort of thing, it's, it's, it's a very... Well, I would... I have it written in my book, and, and y'all don't have to take, take my word for it. It's like, it just felt like mysticism is kind of effeminate. You know, and not feminine. Let me make that very clear for you, ladies, uh, that to be feminine is to abide by your natural attributes as a woman, right? Women typically are much more uh, caring, nurturing. You know, they they are in tune with other people's feelings a little bit more. They can be more, um, women typically are more empathetic. Men typically are not, Right. Men are much more objective. They just like, well, let's just say what the truth is. Well, who cares if I hurt someone's feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, oops. Yeah. But the thing is, is that with mysticism, I don't know. I just, it, take it for what it's worth. When you see a guy who's leading a worship service and he's up there using these kind of words and phrases, you know, seeing God, touching God, feeling God, it almost seems like they want Jesus to be their boyfriend or something. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to getting up there and leading worship, singing about who Jesus is objectively. You know, who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And that should move you. Right? That should move you to feel joy. That should move you to feel comfort. Not trying to get into all these emotions. You see what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it sounds effeminate. I think it sounds more psychedelic. Psychedelic, man. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. That's so funny. Swept away, knowing God in some sort of secret and direct way. Oh, yeah. That's just kind of funny. It just reminds me of that song, you know, In the Secret, In the Quiet Place. I'm not even going to go into that. That's another life. Another life. All right. So, for the mystic, the historic liturgy of the church, right, seems incredibly dry and void of spirituality. Uh, you know, Someone who might come to our church on Sunday mornings who's used to that sort of mystical kind of experience, they'll probably come here and just go, I wasn't really feeling it. 
right? And my point is that, hey, that's not really the point, you know? Mm -hmm. That's not the point. I mean, people who say, well, we want people to leave church feeling good. And when everybody, whenever somebody says that, I'd be like, I want them to feel good because they know that Jesus died for them. I don't want them to leave feeling good because, hey, that was a great song, you know, or, you know, um, hey, uh, thanks, thanks for the encouragement to just be happy or something like that. I don't know. So it's like I want them to be joyful for the, the, the objective um, proclamation of the gospel. That's why I want them to have joy, not because of uh, other things that have to do with how we feel, right? All right. Uh, for the sake of time, let's just keep on going. How about enthusiasm? Because this one is kind of very similar and touches on some things. Like all these are kind of intertwined together. Enthusiasm. Uh, I bet when you first read this, you'd be like, what's, what's wrong with enthusiasm? Like it's okay to be enthusiastic about something, right? But like he says, this is a, um, this is a, uh, what does he say? This is a theological term, right? It can also mean uh, that the spiritual life happens inside of us, right? That enthusiasm teaches that the spiritual life happens inside of us. And why is this appealing? If it's all happening inside of you. What, what's so appealing about that? We can be the source of what's right or wrong. Okay, yeah, we can kind of make up our own rules. Your own rules. I know I'm subjective. Yeah. Or truth is subjective. Right, yeah, all truth is relative, that sort of thing, right? Anybody other? Are there any thoughts on that? Yeah. I think people find enthusiasm appealing because they think they can control what God says through their, through their heart, not through Scripture. Yeah, right. That um, I think I was trying to find it this morning and I couldn't find it on the fly. I didn't look for it later because I was a little busy with stuff. But Luther talks about the enthusiasts um, at that time. These were people who were like the Anabaptists at the time who were who were saying, you know, who were like rejecting baptism because they said, well, it doesn't matter about that baptism as long as I've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit inside of me, right? They rejected all external forms of worship as far as that being meaningful. You see what I mean? They would reject the sacraments. They would reject those things because they go, I don't need that because God is directly speaking to me inside of myself. And like you said, I can make up my own rules within my own heart. I don't really need scripture. In fact, they some of them even went so far as to say, well, we, what is it? that we don't abide by a dead letter. They're twisting Paul's words, right? We don't abide by a dead letter, but by the Spirit. And it's just like, that's not what Paul was talking about. You're, you're, you're misreading these things. And Luther likens it to, you know, a lie of Satan, right? So it's like, if, if our spiritual life is all internal, we get to define our own parameters, our own rules, how I get to believe about my God that I trust in. You know, it's like, it kind of leads you down the path of, oh, well, I don't believe that a God would do that. I don't believe that a God would not allow women to be pastors. I don't believe that a God would hate you because of who you loved just because you're gay or whatever. It's like, I don't believe in that kind of God because that's not how I feel, right? That's kind of enthusiasm, right? It's this, this understanding 
or this thought that, yeah, I get to make up my own rules based on what's inside my heart. And so what's the danger? What's the danger? You will go and left. Yeah, you're, you're off the rails. Uh-huh. You're on shaky ground. You're like the guy who built his house on sand. And then when the waves came, what house? There is no house anymore, right? It's all gone. Um, yeah. It, well, it can lead to no fences, no ground rules. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I, I mean, you wind up saying, yeah, I get to do whatever I want because that's how I think God sees me and sees the right thing, right? Yeah, no fences, no ground rules. I was reading through here and, you know, some of the Bible studies. What does this verse mean to you? Oh, yeah. Red flag. Yeah, right. That's it. I've heard yes. that already, too. Yes. Sadly, the Missouri Synod, I think, has engaged in some of that as well. And, yeah, it is a it is a red flag. Yeah. What yeah, What does this verse mean to you? What does it mean to you? And it's just like, well, if it means that much to you, what if I don't think it means that? How can we actually be unified in our understanding of this passage or this verse? If that's what it means to you and... I think it means this to me, and we both can't be wrong. It's like those people who say, you know, well, that's your opinion, and no opinion can be wrong opinion. Right? Have you ever heard that before? That, like, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion? Have you ever heard that before? I've heard it from people that I don't really know. I've just heard it out there from other people. And I remember one a, a, a pastor of mine from years back, he, he had a sermon where he used that in a sermon where he's like, these people who say, you know, well, that's your opinion. and Or like, everyone's entitled to their opinion and no opinion is necessarily wrong. And he goes, all right, so what if I was of the opinion that it's good child raising uh, to beat my child every hour on the hour with a stick, as long as the stick is three feet long and about half an inch wide? Is that a good opinion to hold? No, it's a horrible opinion. Opinions can be wrong, right? You can be wrong about your opinion. Uh, just like you can be wrong about how you feel about God, especially if it doesn't match up with Scripture, right? So it fails to see that the Lord's gracious work is chiefly on the outside of us, right? That our our salvation doesn't, doesn't begin inside of us, it begins outside of us, right? That the Word must be preached to us, you know, that faith comes by hearing and the and the hearing of the Word of God, right? That the Word comes in from outside of us and affects that change and brings us about to faith, okay? Enthusiasm doesn't believe that, okay? Any any other questions on this? I mean, there's a lot we can say on this, but we probably need to keep moving on. Um, to a fa- to a really good topic, legalism. Oof. Legalism puts the law above the gospel by establishing requirements for salvation beyond repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that appealing? Why is that appealing? I said it's appealing because it doesn't require us to trust in something other than ourselves. Oh, that's 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 good. Yeah. That's a good reason that it would be appealing. Yeah, that's, yeah. We like to trust in what we can do, 
Yeah. Kind of like with pietism. We like to keep score, right? Well, um, and it, it can be very hard to trust another person. Yeah. So it's, it's just easier to rely on ourselves. It's true. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good point. Any other thoughts on that? Be careful. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful with legalism. Um, what is what is the danger of legalism? Well, the gospel is about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and the law was the, the laws of Moses. So it's what God wanted people to do with their life, and His He wanted them to do the, those things with their life for their own safety, for their own um, uh, salvation, or... Yeah, as far as the laws of Moses that mm -hmm. were laid out. You know, it's actually kind of interesting. It, it, yeah, I mean, the law was set forward for our good. Mm -hmm. uh, there were, you know, different types of law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, what they did in the temple, things like that. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, these were requirements that if you did not meet all these specific requirements that, yeah, you, you were unworthy. But there was always that day of atonement that they would have, right? That the sins of the people would be atoned for. And actually daily sacrifices were made for the people in the temple. That's the part of the job of the priests. Mm -hmm. So there's always that gospel that's there. There's always grace that's being offered, but not so that we would lessen the severity of the law. Um, in the Old Testament, you know, there were laws there for people's safety, for their good, for the good order of the society and the people of God. And those were also a foreshadowing, a type, you know, a foreshadowing of what would be fulfilled in Christ, right? That he lived perfectly according to all that law and in our place, right? And, and even the Day of Atonement was... A foreshadowing of what Christ would do in atoning for our sins, right? Being mm -hmm. the lamb that was sacrificed, being the scapegoat, all these things. Mm -hmm. So, but today, legalism, um, yeah, legalism, the danger is that, what is he talking about here? Where um, you're always kind of swinging between pride and despair, mm -hmm. right? That on some level, if you're keeping, you're kind of like that rich young man who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved, right? Or what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. right? And Jesus says, do you know the commandments? Have you kept them? You know, you shall not, uh, you shall have no other gods. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, all these things like that. And he says, I have kept all these from my youth. He's proud, mm -hmm. Right. And then he says, all right, now go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. And then he went away sad because he had much, he had a lot of possessions, a lot of wealth. So he was despairing because he was still trusting in the wrong thing, mm -hmm. right? So legalism leads to either pride or despair or kind of a swinging back and forth between the two. Um, it's a roller coaster ride, you know? Um, that, you know, the proud are always, 
measuring what they're doing. The proud keep score. And then those who are despairing, um, you know, there's, there's almost nothing, it, it seems like nothing can bring them out of it, right? Mm -hmm. That they despair of even the good works of Christ for themselves, right? So that's the danger. That's the danger of legalism. Um, any thoughts on that? I've been told our church is way too legalistic. <laughs> and see, that's another thing. And I'll just touch on this real <laughs> briefly. We should be careful at who we talk about being legalists. Because like, if somebody's telling you, hey, we, we do something in church for good order, right? Or it's, for, it's, it's so that people can learn what they need to know about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And someone goes, that's legalistic. Mm -hmm. Like, I literally didn't say anything about we must do this for our salvation, right? I did not say anything about that. Um, and what is it? If we say something like, you know, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Like, if we say something about close communion, right? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, right? that's, that's it, right? That's usually there. what it is, right? It's like, you're a legalist. It's like, actually, this is a very loving thing to do to keep people from partaking in something they don't really understand what it is. I mean, Paul's very clear about that. If you do not discern the body and blood of Christ, then you blaspheme against the body and blood, right? And all we're trying to do is keep people from themselves. Mm -hmm. This is a practice that has been around for, since the church has been around, right? I mean, they wouldn't just let somebody come in who had just, who had just got done worshiping Zeus and come in and say, here, have the body and blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. Right? Uh, that's, that's not legalistic. That's actually loving to do that. People, I think, have a misunderstanding of what, we, of what legalism really is, right? Which is really um, establishing requirements for salvation beyond repentance and faith in Christ. Right? We're not doing that when we have good order. We're not doing that when, when, we, uh, when we have limitations on certain things within church for the sake of people's good. Right? I mean, that's like saying, it's like, what, Pastor, why do, why do you wear an alb and a stole every Sunday? You're a legalist because you know what a good pastor would do? Get up there in a short and t-shirts. What? And not even stand behind a pulpit. Yeah, yeah. Walk around amongst everybody, yeah, patting them on the back as you preach. Yeah. If you say that you are better off in the pulpit when you preach, you're a legalist. It's like, that's not really what that means. It's like, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works, you know? It's just, it's just, but that's the way you're branded. That's, that's yeah. the way people... Well, if someone's going to do that, you're just like, all right, well, at, at least you know where they stand. <laughs> you're just like, all right, so I know where I can begin this conversation. Right? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, legalists. That's great. How about moralism, though? Let's touch on moralism for the sake of time. Let's keep on pushing. Moralism teaches that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Why is that appealing? Why is that appealing? You're trying to earn your own way into heaven by being good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just a swapping out, right, of the of the gospel for the law. Mm -hmm. uh, similar to legalism, but just in a different kind of shade. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's a slightly different kind of shade. Um, and it... What does he say? Um, yeah, it tends to tends toward the prideful side, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
when you when when he says like when when you ask people will you go to heaven often they they most often say yes and they go why and you know what the answer is well I'm a good person mm-hmm. I'm a good person um and that's what he says the creed of the sinful flesh is right I'm not that bad I'm not that bad so yeah it's appealing on that level again because we like to keep score by what by the good things that we do how moral and good a life we live but what's the danger again you don't need a savior yeah right. you're good enough it's like the i don't you know i never really saw this i just saw it in like little clips but it's like the saturday night live uh, saturday night live thing where it's like stuart smalley he's like i'm good enough i'm smart enough and doggone it people like me you know, it, it's the gospel according to Stuart Smalley, right? I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. Yeah, that's not how that works, right? The gospel is overshadowed again, 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 right? So let's look at the prodigal son, like he talks about here in the chapter. Uh, I think he starts on, you know, he asks on page 33. It says, in the parable of the prodigal son, we see three slaveries, Slavery to passions and sin, slavery to despair of God's mercy, and slavery of obedience to God's commandments. Why do we tend towards slavery instead of sonship? I said because our human sinful brains cannot rationalize the love of God. (laughs) That's very good. Mm, That's pretty good. Yeah, we cannot fathom the love of God. It doesn't make sense, right? Excuse me. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense to us. Um, first of all, on some level, we might say, uh, on the pride side, we're like, "Why would I need God's love? I'm I'm a good person." You know, in some ways, we can find it insulting if we're that prideful. On the other side of despair, you say, "Why would God love such a horrible person like me?" Right. Um, so yeah. By ourselves, we cannot fathom the love of God. It's a good way to put it, Amy. Um, yeah, I think of that song, I Can Only Imagine. Okay. <laughs> can of worms here being open, yeah? What's, what's your point about I Can Only Imagine? How can you imagine God's love? I mean, it's just so great that... Yeah. Well, you know, we're... Can't, can't put it in this brain right here. Yeah, right. We can't, you know, we can't, we can't fathom it. Yeah, I mean, on some level, he's right. Like, I can only imagine, like, and it's limited, mm-hmm. right? But, yeah, how can you fully understand? You can't. Um, but it's interesting. So, slavery and sonship, um, I mean, the father wants sons, not slaves, right? As he says on page 34. The father wants sons, not slaves. Um, I love what he said about about that lady he met at the, uh, uh, you know, he was waiting in line to return a movie. (laughs) And the lady um, totally, you know, tottered up to him and asked abruptly, what do you do? I'm a Lutheran pastor. Oh, she said, I'm a Baptist. What's the difference? What a surprise this conversation was. Well, I began... I suppose in your church, you have a time of decision at the end of the service? Yes, an altar call. Right, an altar call. A time to receive Jesus into your life and pray the sinner's prayer. Yes, she said. 
Lutherans do things a bit differently. You know, instead of asking the sinner to receive Jesus, we ask if Jesus has received us. Instead of asking the sinner to dedicate his or her life to Christ, we ask if Christ has given his entire life and died for us. Instead of asking sinners to pray, we ask if Jesus prays for us. And the answer to this question is a sure and certain yes. She started crying. That's the most wonderful thing I've ever heard, right? Uh, because it totally takes it away from us. Um, the slavery that we would bind ourselves to of our passions, of our uh, despair of God's mercy, of our, of, of our obedience to God's commandments, pale in comparison to be a son that has been welcomed into God's kingdom by God's work alone, by his grace alone, through the faith alone that he supplies to us, so that we would be joyful in his presence and give thanks and praise for all that he has done, right? But like we said, this takes faith, faith that is supplied by God himself. By ourselves, we can't understand. It doesn't make any sense. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Any thoughts on that? I know we're kind of going through pretty quick here, but any thoughts or comments? Nope. Pretty clear, huh? I mean, it's it's a lot of stuff to think about. We could go on for a long time on all of this stuff, uh, but it's probably best to leave it there. Um... Yeah, I think I think to top it off on chapter one, that that last part of on page thirty-seven, um, it says American Christianity strives for certainty without the gospel. Right, it strives for certainty in other things besides the gospel. Um, but really, our comfort is only from the certainty of Christ, right? What He has done. That's where our comfort truly is found. Okay. We've got a little bit of time left. If y'all don't mind going over just a little bit, we can kind of get into chapter two. Unless y'all, unless you have to go. It's okay. We've got five minutes left in the hour. Um, probably not going to get through all of this, but if we can kind of get through some of it, that'd be good. Um, so chapter two, and if you didn't read this far, don't tell anybody. Okay. Uh, just kind of go with the flow. I'm starting to read kind of quick at the end. That's all right. So number one, uh, question number one. Inspired, inerrant, and infallible are the three attributes that American Christianity gives. And why isn't that enough? These are all good, right? Yeah. But why aren't they enough? Well, I think the Bible is... The truth. Okay. Yeah, it is the truth. What else does he say about... What are the other... Um, what are three more attributes that he talks about? Is it three? Yeah. Yeah, it's three more attributes. Inerrant is without error, and infallible is unable to err. Right, but then he says like... Clarity. He had another yes. word in there too. Three more? I thought it was one or two more. It's uh, clarity, sufficiency, and... Efficacy. Yeah, that was it. Efficacy. Yeah. That it's effective. Yeah. Right? So these these are good. And that's something that we can agree with our brothers and sisters in Christ and other traditions that say, well, the Bible is the inspired, uh, the infallible, and the inerrant word of God. And we go, yeah, amen. That's 
definitely true. Mm-hmm. But if they say, and that's all it is, which I don't think they would necessarily say that's all it is, but it's like we need to go further because Satan has a way of coming at our weak points, right? And our weak points is that if we don't talk about the clarity of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the efficacy of Scripture, we leave ourselves open to certain attacks, right? Um, Because as Lutherans, as he says in number two, he says, as Lutherans, we believe in the clarity of the Bible, yet many other Christians simply don't. Is Scripture clear? Not always. Not always. (laughs) I mean, maybe not by itself in some ways, so you need to have Scripture interpret Scripture, right? right. <laughs> but as a whole, in, in the entirety of Scripture, is it, is it clear by itself? I mean, it is for the important things, right? We as Lutherans speak where the Bible speaks, and where it is silent, we remain silent, right? The Bible's not going to tell you, like I said, exactly how to order a hamburger, Right? It's not important, right? But it is clear on what salvation means and who salvation is through, right? Um, what does he say here? That um, in, other, in other denominations, you know, they'll say, you know, well, Scripture needs to be interpreted by tradition or Scripture needs to be interpreted by the culture, right? But he says whatever stands alongside the Scriptures winds up replacing the Scriptures, right? So if the Scripture is unclear, Right? Some, sometimes it's not quite clear when you read something like from James. Right? When, 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 he, when James is talking about good works, you may think to yourself, well, that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble here. So then you have to go to other parts of Scripture to help you understand what James is trying to talk about. When it talks about good works being the fruit of faith. Right? What Jesus even says about good works being the fruit of faith. So scripture in itself is clear, and um, it's funny, he says on what, page 44, he says, American Christianity finally denies the clarity of scripture by denying theological certainty, because he says, like, people will say, you know, um, he says, it it sounds like this, I'm not Lutheran or Presbyterian, I'm Christian. That's saying, I don't think we can know with certainty whose teaching is absolutely correct, right? So it's like, let's just, let's just... Uh, what is it? We we Lutherans in America actually fell prey to this. At, uh, I think about a little more than a hundred years ago, when the Lutherans were trying to, you know, become ecumenical with like Methodists and, and Presbyterians and things like that, by saying, "Well, we have major points of doctrine and minor points of doctrine, and let's let's focus on the major points of doctrine." And we won't worry so much about the minor ones. It just so happened that the major points of doctrine were, you know, like the Trinity and, uh, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who they are, that Jesus has died for their sins, things like that, right? Those are major points. Oh, but the minor points are what we believe about Holy Baptism and Communion. Not even realizing that what you say about Holy Baptism and Communion actually informs your understanding about God himself, right? Um, that if you think that Jesus can't be present in the body and blood of, in his body and blood, in the bread and wine on communion, that says a lot about what you believe Jesus can do and can't do, right? At the very least. So um, people will say, let's just stop arguing and let's just all accept the fact that we're Christians. It's like, 
that's fine. But when you say that what you present on the altar for the bread and for the body and blood of Christ is not really the body and blood of Christ, when Jesus says that it is, I'm at least gonna say, I'm not gonna take that, right? I'm not gonna engage in that because I don't believe that, right? Um, so scripture is clear on, on, on the big points. And he says, um, yeah, American Christianity is weak and growing weaker, teaching the unclarity of the scriptures, that the unclarity of the scriptures flourishes when theological assertions are, are labeled opinions and the opinions of men, right? Um, they'll probably get upset with us if they don't call us legalists, right, James? If they don't call us legalists, then they'll call us divisive because we actually want to teach and, and hold to good doctrine. And we're just trying to say, but we, we want to know what the Bible has to say on this, right? And the Bible's clear. The Bible's clear about that. And we're going to stand to it and stand on that solid rock. Okay? Yeah, I remember, I guess it was back in, what, the mid-80s, mm -hmm. the church I was going to, you know, I guess all the three Lutheran churches were going to combine into the uh, ELCA. That's right. And at the time, I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. But boy, was I wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Oops. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that, a big proponent of that merger between those three church bodies were those guys that, that were... Were those guys and that group that left the LCMS because of what happened at the St. Louis Seminary? It was like our battle for the Bible kind of thing, where they were teach, where certain professors at the uh, seminary in St. Louis were saying, basically, like, yeah, I believe uh, that the Bible, you know, contains the Word of God, but I don't necessarily believe, you know, that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish because that's not the important point. That's what they would say. That's how slippery they would be. They say, oh, it's not important that Jonah, whether or not he was actually swallowed by a fish, but what's important is what we learn from that. And three days. Right, yeah, and three days in the belly of a fish because it defied reason and our understanding of the natural world, right? Miracles got thrown out the window because of all that. It was... So those, those guys were the ones who were pushing the other two church bodies, the LCA and the ALC, to come together. It's like, let's form a big old Lutheran church body, and they formed the ELCA. And Well, now you know the rest of the story. So, All right. Um, how about this? The Bible is sufficient. Let's go to number three. The Bible is sufficient. It is enough for our life and for our faith. Why do some argue that it isn't? Let's ask that first question. Why do some argue that the Bible is not sufficient enough? Because we don't always like what it says. <laughs> yeah. We don't always like it. Yeah. I mean, what does he say? Yeah, uh, that American Christianity teaches us to look for personal direction from God. Right? It's just like people will say... Um, you know, I just want God to tell me what he wants me wants for my life. It's like, what do you want God to tell you? I mean, what are you looking to, what are you looking to God for direction in? And like I said, he's he's not necessarily going to tell you you should take that job or he's not necessarily telling you clearly whether or not you should, you know, move to another state or whatever. 
or even leave, leave the church you're at to go to a different church. He's not necessarily telling you those very clearly because he's not, was it, he says, does, does the Bible answer the question, what is God's will for my life? That's a good question. Does it answer that question? What is God's will for my life? That I would come to him through Jesus Christ. Yes. Period. Yeah. That is, that is his will, right? That we would come to the knowledge of salvation in Christ. Uh, but that doesn't that necessarily do it for everybody. I hate to tell you. Some people would just be like, no, but I really want to know, should I take this class or not? No, but I really want to know, should I ask for a raise from my boss or not? I want God to tell me. Well, then you're going to be waiting for a while. I don't think I've read that in the Bible. The section on getting a raise, you know, or the section on what you should do in this sort of situation or whatever, right? But, yeah, you have a lot of those people, but then on the other side, you have the people like, uh, you know, maybe a Joseph Smith or whatever who is, I have a dream. Yeah, right, dream. yeah, I have received a revelation, I that sort a of thing. Yeah. If you're going to make a major decision in life, shouldn't you pray about it? Exactly, you should. Mm -hmm. But... But you don't expect telegram from God. Right, yeah, you're not going to expect it written out for you. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah, so what is God's will for my life? I mean, what he really cares about, and really it's kind of funny, we should really, when it comes down to it, brass tacks, we should really only care about whether or not we believe in Christ and whether or not he has died for our sins. Everything else is just kind of, I mean, you can figure it out for your own. And there are ways that the Bible can help you make wise decisions, right? With mm -hmm. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and things like that. Mm -hmm. It can help teach you wisdom. But when it comes to salvation, I mean, that's like the big question. Mm -hmm. That's the big question of what is God's will for my life? He desires that you would be saved. Come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and picking the Right wisdom. The right wisdom? Wisdom and wife. Oh, wisdom and wife. There you go. Yeah, yeah. A good a good and godly spouse is a wonderful thing to have. You betcha. For sure. When, when you say the Bible is sufficient, is it enough for our life? The Christian bookstores are full of books. That's a good point. That's a good point. The Bible and our pastor said, "Don't buy any of those. Yeah. Just read the Bible." Yeah, don't mess with that stuff. It's like all these self-help books. Well, let's just read Proverbs, you know, and not and not just once, right? Right. Keep keep reading it because it can mean different things depending on your situation and experience in life, right? Mm -hmm. So Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature, the Bible. I mean, that stuff is. I mean. God gave it to us. We should read it, right? Um, so yeah, the Bible is sufficient. We rejoice that in the Lord's word, we have all that we need for life and salvation, right? Read your Bibles. It's simple, right? All right, so we believe that the Bible is efficacious. It has power and authority. If one loses sight of this truth, what happens? So do y'all need some, uh, do y'all need to, have anything clarified about what it means that the Bible or that the scriptures are efficacious? Was that clear to y'all what he means? Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens if we lose sight that 
of the truth that the scriptures are um, that the scriptures um, excuse me what happens if we lose sight of the truth that the scriptures are efficacious what happens it's like Peter walking on the water and then he lost faith in Jesus and started sinking yeah he started being more concerned about the wind and the waves mm -hmm. right and he started to sink he took his eyes off Jesus mm -hmm. um yeah, the Bible just becomes any other book. Yeah. Nothing special. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's like, I read it once. It's like it's a novel or something, you know. It's like, yeah, I read it. I don't, I don't, I don't need to really read it again. But I mean, the Word of God is powerful, right? Um, and what does he say? You know, that the Word, I mean, Jesus is the Word made flesh. You know, that by his mouth, by his mouth, by his words, that everything that was created was created, right? It is a powerful thing. Well, like he says, you know, Jesus says to Lazarus, "Come out," and he woke up from the dead. Be still, he says to the storm, and the waves went to sleep. Right? Believe, Jesus says to you, and you believe, right? That the word of God, uh, the power of the word of God was not simply for the beginning when the voice of God created the cosmos from nothing. This creation continues in his word and the preaching of the word today. God's word is a sword that the Holy Spirit is wielding in the world. Right? It's effective. And we should wield it. Right? We should know it. Okay? If we lose sight of this, then we just say, <laughs> if, we, if we lose sight of this, then we lose sight of our comfort, uh, our assurance. Right? We're on shaky ground at the very least, okay? Uh, I love this. Basic instructions before leaving Earth. How many times have I heard that? I don't know. If I had a nickel for every time I heard, it's like, well, you know what the Bible means? Basic instructions before leaving Earth. And why didn't I think of that? Um, all right, the Bible as instruction manual is horrible. Oh, I love that he was so, he just really said, you know, I cannot imagine a more terrible description. I loved his honesty. It was so good. So what are the shortcomings with this approach? See the Bible as an instruction manual. You completely missed the most important part. Yeah. It's kind of like the whole first chapter that we just went through. If you think it's all about what you got to do, where's the gospel, Right. Where is the gospel? I mean, it decry like the Bible decries self-help, like he's talking about, right? The Bible is not self-help. It's not therapy. It's not therapy. It does offer us peace, but it is the peace of repentance, the peace that comes from the outside, peace accomplished before we were born in the bleeding and dying of Jesus, right? That's uh, page 48 and 49. Um, it's so short. It's, it's so, it falls so short that if you only hold on to it as, like he says, the, an instruction manual, uh, the forgiving death of Jesus is lost. It's gone. Okay? You know, Thoughts on that? You said you've heard that before, but actually when I read this, it's the first time it's like, I must be in a different world. Maybe. To me. Maybe. I mean, I maybe. Uh, but I, I'm exaggerating. I've, I've, I've heard it a number of times, not so much to where I'd be rich if I heard a, if I had a, 
nickel for every time I heard it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like, I mean, I think it's a newer thing, kind of like the WWJD. Yeah, it's very much a '90s kind of thing. I think it was newer. '90s and 2000s kind of uh, resurgence of Christianity kind of thing. It's like basic instructions. I mean, because it's like if you if you if you make it about the law, then yeah, people are going to be kind of coerced into reading it. It's like, well, if it tells me what I got to do, I'm gonna go find out. Right? Well, that's not the point. That's not the point. Um, so this is a great question. Um, our doctrine is our salvation. Page 51. Our doctrine is our salvation. How would you, you know, what is your reaction to this statement? Our doctrine is our salvation. Do you agree with it? First of all, I guess, or is it, is it a bad statement? I feel like he didn't really give a good definition of doctrine. Okay. The best I can make out is he's saying doctrine is like the knowledge of who God is. Where do you see that? Um, well, he never says it. Oh. <laughs> that's the like the best what I said. Like that's okay. the best definition I can get from what he's talking about. It is doctrine is the knowledge of who God is because he doesn't give a different definition. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, what is what is God teaching me about Himself? Okay, truth as opposed to what I think it's saying. I am. Yeah. The knowledge of truth, the knowledge of trivia, or the knowledge of Jesus. That first uh, paragraph there. On page uh, fifty-one. Fifty-one. Okay. Yeah, doctrine. Um, who do people say the Son of Man is? Yeah. Who do you say that I am? The knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of Jesus, is more than trivia. It is life. Yeah. Well, I mean, doctrine is otherwise, you know, it's synonymous. Another word for doctrine is teaching, right? When Jesus says, you know, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, that I, lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. I mean, the doctrine is... Doctrine is, doctrine is our salvation. I actually uh, probably... I mean, that's a good way to put it. I like what he's saying, but I think something that would supplement that is also doctrine is life. That what we know about who God is and what he has done for us grants us life and salvation, right? Uh, and it is the life, it, it, it is what should guide our life. <clears throat> now, I'm not sure exactly what he's um, getting at other than just to say, you know, um, yeah, he's not very clear exactly what the definition of doctrine would mean and what in what he's trying to say. But I mean at the very least our doctrine is our salvation. I mean to be to be charitable and honest I, I would say that it would mean that our teaching about uh well I mean Christ is throughout the entire Bible, right? He's even in the Old Testament. Right? I mean, that's what I've been trying to teach with having our psalms have Jesus Christ whenever we see Lord, right? That the entirety of the scriptures give us the teaching by which we should live our life of faith. And so with that, our doctrine is our salvation would mean that what we teach needs to be in accordance with the entirety of the scriptures, because the entirety of the scriptures 
tells us about God's will for our salvation. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, so my thought was, if you define doctrine as just the knowledge of God, mm. then I disagree because even demons know who God is. Oh, okay. And they tremble because they don't have the hope of salvation. Okay. okay. But if you define it as doctrine is the teaching of the gospel, you know, that's more of a... It's, it's more than just a knowledge that Jesus existed. It's right, more right. what did he do for you. And yeah, exactly. And then I could accept. Yeah, it's that. not a, it's like you said, it's, it's not just trivial knowledge. Uh, but the knowledge of salvation is, is uh, the proper distinction there, right? Um, but I think it's interesting. He quotes 1 Timothy 4.16. And, you know, Paul writes... To Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching that is the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Right? Persist in the doctrine, the knowledge of salvation. Persist in reinforcing the knowledge of who Christ is and what he has done for you. Not just that, yeah. Well, yeah, Jesus existed. Next question. Yeah, okay, what did he do? Right? And why is that important? Yeah. So yeah, okay. Anybody else else want to re react to that? Our doctrine is our salvation. Man, we're doing really good. I thought this was going to take longer. All right. We actually only have two more questions left. Y'all want to push through. Um, why are these two questions important when reading Scripture? Uh, what is God teaching me about himself, and where is the comfort? So let's talk about that first one. Why, why is a question... What is God teaching me about himself important when reading scripture? The focus is on God. As opposed to... Me. Yeah. As opposed to like, what does this mean to me? Right? Kind of like what you're saying, James. Like, yeah. what does this passage mean to me? The red flag. Yeah, the red flag. So maybe instead say, what is God teaching me about himself? Yeah. Keeps the focus where it should be. Uh, what about where's the comfort? Why is that a, why is that an important question when reading scripture? It teaches about salvation and eternal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where's the comfort? Is it is is my salvation and eternal life found in me? No. Where is it found? In Jesus. That's right. Yeah. Where is my where is the forgiveness of my sins? Where is my Savior Jesus? Right? Where is the comfort? Very important questions. Any other thoughts on that? They're just there to reorient you back to where your focus should be. Okay? Um, <laughs> God's word is awesome. <laughs> Why and how? And they come up with some great questions, right? God's word is awesome. Why is why is God's word awesome? It's one of a kind. It's living. It's breathing. Creating. Unexpected. Eternal. Loving. True. Wow. Yeah. Keep, keep on. Amen. And then I just right? stopped because I ran out yeah. of time. No. Amen. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, like he says that. Uh, what um, Psalm Psalm one right? Blessed the the blessed man delights in the word of the Lord. He loves it and considers it precious, the most precious thing he has because of all those things that you listen out, right? 
I mean, it is living and breathing. It is, it is the, it is what tells us who God is, right? It tells us what he has done for us. Uh, it gives us a way to live a good life, but it also tells us that when we fall short, we have a savior who is greater than our sins, who has died for them, right? Um, any other thoughts on that? I wish they would have asked some more questions about the rest of this chapter. Um, I guess I guess I'll I'll ask this question because yeah, God's God's word is awesome, but um, I thought this was interesting, and we'll end on this one. That what did y'all? Well, there's this thought on page fifty four when he's talking about you know, the surprise of the next page. He's talking about boredom. Um, we easily get bored. I mean, why do you think so many people have TVs and smartphones and things like that? I mean, we get bored a lot. Um, and I think it'd be better for us to get bored more often, but not with the Word of God, right? Uh, with the Word of God, you know, the devil tempts us, like he says, to desire the things that are sinful. And there's an opposite and equally dangerous temptation to desire, to not desire the things that we should. This is the sin of boredom. We rarely think of boredom as a sin, but the devil uses our lack of desire against us. I mean, I thought his equating that to, you know, sloth, one of the seven deadly sins, was just a very astute observation. Um, it's a flattening of desire. Like, we lose our desire to really engage in God's Word. We lose our desire to see the Word of the Lord as um, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, right? So... We should re be reminded that, you know, it, it's kind of interesting. If you ever want to know, it's like, have you ever tried to sit down and really say, all right, I am going to start a habit of reading my Bible, doing a daily devotion of some kind, and you sit down, or even before you sit down to open up your Bible, you find all kinds of excuses as to why you shouldn't. Have you ever had that feeling before? You try and make it, you try and procrastinate as long as you can. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that is your sinful flesh being tempted to slothfulness when it comes to reading the Bible. When it comes to delighting in the Word of God, that is all the things that it promises to be. And for that, we should repent. And for that, we should pray, right? We should pray that God would do away with our boredom and help us to see that... Uh, our desire for something new is actually all throughout Scripture. Right? The gospel is always a surprise. What does he say? Um, <laughs> the Bible will not let, like, it's always what we least expect. Um, he never does what we expect. This is why reading the Bible is an adventure. It's about the three most astonishing and unpredictable characters there ever will be. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their conversation, their works, and their thoughts are all above ours. Every word and act of God is a surprise. We're always surprised by Jesus when he hangs out with sinners, right? Uh, we uh, always are surprised at, you know, like the father and the prodigal son. We're always surprised by these things because it's like, well, that's not what I would do, right? So I pray that y'all would be surprised by the word of God, by continuing to be in it. Uh, hopefully this has kind of helped y'all in that 
in that uh, in taking the good step towards that. Any anybody want to have any closing thoughts or comments on something we didn't touch on, or uh, just thoughts and comments in general? Well, you know, some of the books are about like Genesis. You're not going to get bored, but numbers. <laughs> Yeah, numbers is pretty rough, um, but it's important, right? I mean, it's 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 there for a reason. All those numbers mean something, and if you care to know, then it's there for you to read. But you can read another Bible. You can read another book if you'd like to. Um, yeah, what numbers? Leviticus is a little rough. Deuteronomy is a little rough, but they are kind of surprising. No, they can't mean they got numbers is the one that. <laughs> Numbers and Ezra. Those are very similar books. Ezra is a tough book to get through because it's all just like keeping record of who's who and how many people and this, that, and the other came out of the diaspora and went on out of the exile. And... Oh, man. Anyways, yeah. But, yeah. Those are important too. It's okay to be bored. Um... It's okay to be bored. It's okay to be bored with certain things, but I pray that we don't be bored with the, the Word of God. All right. Any last thoughts? Closing thoughts? We went a little long. We won't always go this long because that was just trying to get through the first two chapters. What's up, Ed? Oh, you don't Okay. You're good. So after this, it'll only be one, one chapter a week. Chapter three. Yeah, chapter three for next week. Like I said, so we got through with chapter one before the hour was over, so we can easily do that uh, next time. Um, all right, well, uh, thanks for coming. And to close us out, how about let's, uh, let's pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever.